Amen. Appreciate the singing this morning. Do you ever wonder why we sing in church? Why do we sing? Is it tradition? Just this is the way we've always done things and so might as well keep doing it? Is it a way to stay relevant with the culture? Is it a way to connect with people uh, who maybe are not familiar with preaching uh, as an exercise? Is it a way to get people involved in the service? Well, certainly none of those things are inherently wrong, but they're pretty weak and thin reasons for singing. But I want us to think together this morning about that question, why do we sing? And our text is going to be what Pastor Doug read a few minutes ago in Psalm 96, if you'd like to turn there. But my short answer to this question is, we sing because it's the proper response of people who understand who God is and what he has done for us in Christ. So if you don't know God, if you are not a Christian, and I'm assuming that there are some listening who are not, then it might be a strange or foreign thing that we all meet in this one large room and we sing together. But I promise, if you understand these realities that we're about to describe, you can't help but sing. It's the most logical response in the world. Especially now, in light of all that we've just celebrated at Christmas, it is crucial that we sing, not only as individuals, but as a congregation. Keith and Kristen Getty are contemporary hymn writers, and they've put it this way, we sing because we're created to, commanded to, and compelled to. And when we sing great truths, great things happen. Christ-filled, spirit-prompted singing moves out in concentric circles, changing your own heart and mind, changing your family, changing your church, and even changing this world. Singing really does change hearts. It has that effect. God has created music in such a way that that's the effect that it has. Andrew Fletcher, who is a Scottish uh, member of their parliament back in the 18th century, said this, let me make the songs of a nation, and I care not who makes its laws. There's something about music that gets to the heart of people that mere statute cannot. And so songwriters and poets and artists are the unacknowledged legislators and teachers of our culture and our people. And so as we come to Psalm 96 this morning, I think it's important for us to recognize that this is aimed at heart transformation. We're here today to be changed by what we read and hear and sing. To give just a brief bit of context on this psalm, in the book of 1 Chronicles, we see this psalm and one other one as uh, commissioned by King David as part of a, a church service, essentially, when the ark was being brought into Jerusalem for the first time. Now, see, King David, who lived some 3,000 years ago, who is described as the sweet psalmist of Israel. He became the world's first great songwriter. 
Many of the Psalms in the book of Psalms, which is the longest book in the Bible, are written by David. And Psalms like this, which we don't see are explicitly written by him, are still commissioned by him. And so I think David intuitively understood what Mr. Fletcher said. He understood that to get to the heart of the people, it happens through song. And sure enough, we still sing some of David's songs today. I don't know how many other songs that are 3,000 years old that we still sing. But I'd like to read the psalm as well. Pastor Doug read it a moment ago. I've got a slightly different translation, though the same meaning essentially. And so I'd like to begin reading just at verse 1. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord. Bless his name. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. For great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods, for all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols. But the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Let the heavens be glad. Let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar in all that fills it. Let the field exult in everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord, for he comes. For he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. So our main question that we're trying to answer is why we sing, but this psalm has important instruction as to what we are to sing. And so you see these three terms are sort of paralleled in the psalm. We're to sing his salvation, his glory, and his marvelous works. Well, what does it mean to sing his salvation? Well, I think unlike a lot of contemporary music, singing his salvation is essentially telling the story. Salvation is not a vague or abstract truth. It's the story of a loving God who created a world and created human beings to live in and enjoy that world. Only those human beings rebelled against him. They rejected his good authority and plunged themselves into utter chaos and ruin, which we still experience the effects of. But God was not going to give up on his people. He went after them to rescue them by sending his own son into the world as a baby, which we just celebrated at Christmas. But it wasn't enough that his son came. He had to suffer and die on behalf of the people because our sin earned us a just punishment. But his death was not the end of the story. He rose again, which is what we'll celebrate at Easter. And he did that to show that he himself was not worthy of death. And thus he secured for everyone who turns from their sins and follows him an eternal inheritance, eternal life. Not only that, the story is not yet finished. 
Even today, we still live in the story of the Bible because of the promises, he's coming again. And it is when he comes again that he will judge the nations. Now, that's a very brief version of a long and glorious and at times complicated story. But suffice to say, salvation is that story. It's why we sing this song, or we used to sing this song. I love to tell the story of unseen things above, of Jesus and his glory, of Jesus and his love. I love to tell the story because I know it's true. It satisfies my longings as nothing else can do. So when the Bible says tell of his salvation, it's talking about the story. But more than that, it's his story. It's his salvation. It's about him from beginning to end. God is the one character who is present in every book of the Bible. He's the main character of the story. And not only that, he's the main character of each of our stories, whether we choose to acknowledge him as such or not. He's inescapable. He's always present. He's always working. And so we sing about him and what he has done. He's the subject and the object of our song. By the way, this is the problem with a lot of secular music. Uh, not getting into debates from my teenage years, but it's not so much the, the bad words and the illicit content, though those things are not good. It's the obsessive focus on ourselves and on our experience that makes up so much of our music. Not only secular music, but even music that's supposedly Christian. It's just so turned in on ourselves. And what we desperately need is for our hearts to be turned outward, to see God in the splendor of his holiness and in his majesty. So if the main pronouns in our songs are I and me, instead of you and he, then that just feeds that that default setting in our hearts to turn in on ourselves. So we're commanded to sing about him, about his salvation, his glory, his marvelous works. But we're also compelled to sing. As I said, this is a matter of the heart. This isn't just we're trying to obey the statute. There's a lot of reasons why we sing. And there are three highlighted in this passage. The first is because the Lord alone is God. Now the Lord there is not his title, it's his name. Uh, You might know it as Jehovah or Yahweh. It's the, the personal covenant name of God, the way he was known by his people. And it says in verses four and five, he is to be feared above all gods, for all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols. Now many of us might read those lines, and we might think, well, I don't worship any idols. Why is this text concerned with me? I like the way Tim Keller puts it. He says, an idol is anything more fundamental than God to your happiness, meaning in life, or identity. So then the question is not, do I know that the Lord alone is God, that there is no other God but him? The question is, do I live as though The Lord alone is God. And everything else is secondary. Everything else is a created thing. So a key question for us to ask, even as we think about singing this morning, is there something more fundamental to my happiness, my meaning in life, 
my identity than God. And if there is, it won't ultimately satisfy. That's why that song we quoted a minute ago says, I love to tell the story because I know it's true. It satisfies my longings as nothing else can do. There are so many things in life that promise happiness, that promise true meaning in life. But if you find that you keep devoting yourself to thing after thing after thing, and you keep coming up empty, keep coming up short, like there's got to be something more. Have you considered that the Lord alone is God? And your devotion was meant to be to him. You see this in the music world all the time, the way songs are written. Uh, You hear a love song, which some have described as apocalyptic romance. Nothing in the world is as it should be until I find the person that I love, the person that uh, I want to be with. Often these are written as though nothing will be right in the world if only they could be with the person they love. But really, those songs are often about someone who's made an idol out of the person they're infatuated with. And then the follow-up album has the songs of anger and sadness that come from finding out that they've been disappointed by their idol. But the truth is, we are creatures. We are created beings. And we've been created for only one ultimate object of worship and devotion, and that is the Lord, the God who made us. God is greater than whatever else we could chase, and to find that he alone satisfies our deepest longings, that's the greatest discovery a person could find. See, singing isn't the same thing as worship. They're not exact synonyms. They're not one and the same. But we do tend to sing about what we worship. And so it is important that we sing because he alone is God. But it's not just that he alone is God. He also is king. Verses 7 to 10. This is the second stanza of the poem here. And I've broken this particular stanza down into two uh, phrases. There's Glory due and gospel true. And that's my attempt at real preaching here this morning. Glory due and gospel true. God is owed recognition and honor and gratitude and praise from every person on earth. Remember the story. He created us. That means every person here who's drawing a breath this morning has God to praise and to give thanks to for the life that we enjoy. And life is never in total despair. On this side of eternity, God's grace is always permeating and there's always something to give thanks for because of his grace and his mercy towards us. And Romans 1 tells us that everyone on earth knows this about God, that he is our creator and he alone is king. So even if we don't understand how, or even if we don't feel like God satisfies our deepest longings, he's still due, he's still worthy of all of our gratitude and all of our praise. And that's why the psalmist reminds us of that. There's very clearly a sense in which even if we don't sense that satisfaction that the the hymn writer was talking about, even if we don't feel like it, God is still worthy of all glory. 
And so we are required to glorify him appropriately. That's the glory he is due. But there's also gospel language in this stanza. It's actually bookended with statements of the gospel in verse 7 and verse 10. Verse 7 says, Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. That word families is actually a really important word in the Bible. It goes all the way back to the beginning, the first book, because God made a promise in the book of Genesis. He's talking to Abraham and he said, In you all the families of the earth will be blessed. Remember the story. God created everyone. We rebelled against him and his good authority. And he said, I'm not giving up on you. I'm coming to rescue you. And that rescue plan from the very beginning was to include all the families of the earth. And so at the time this psalm was written, the people of God, the people who had had responded to God's good authority, those people were just the nation of Israel. But their plea, their command to the families is ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name because his redeeming plan is about you too. And so we want you to be included in that. And this is good news for the families of the earth to be blessed. The Apostle Paul in the book of Galatians says that this is a gospel promise. He says, Scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles, that's the families, by faith, he preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. This is a gospel proclamation here. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name, O families of the earth. That's good news. Because it means that he's looking for people to turn He's not just blanket condemned everybody and consigned everyone to eternal punishment. He says, I want you to turn. Right now you're ascribing glory to these worthless idols. Ascribe glory to him because he alone is worthy of it. And he alone is the king. And so there's a gospel proclamation. He's redeeming people from every family and tribe and nation on earth. Those same people who at the time of this psalm were dishonoring his name He is redeeming those people. There's another key gospel statement in this stanza. Verse 10, say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Now why is that good news? Why is it good news to the nations that the Lord reigns? They don't currently worship him. And so that would be bad. The way that these things worked in the ancient world is every nation had its God. And when that nation's army came and conquered another nation, it was understood that it was that nation's God conquering the other nation's God. So if if you're in a nation that doesn't worship the Lord, why is it good news that the God of these other people is in charge, that he reigns? Well, the book of Isaiah tells us that it's good news. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who brings good news of happiness, who says to Zion, your God reigns. What are the feet, the beautiful feet bringing? They're bringing the gospel, the good news. What's the good news? Your God, Zion, the God of Zion is the Lord. He reigns. And that's good news because none of us likes ultimately the injustice and the pain and the suffering that we endure in this life. And so to know that he's in charge means that there's hope that he's going to one day set all things right. 
And that is good news. The utter chaos and ruin that we've plunged ourselves in because of our sin, the Lord is coming to restore his reign. And not only that, if we hear that message and we stop living for ourselves and we stop chasing after these worthless idols, then it's even better news. We can be reconciled to him and the appropriate response of being reconciled to the Lord who reigns break forth together into singing. That's what a redeemed people do. And of course, all of this gospel language finds its fulfillment in Jesus. Jesus is the Christ. That's his title, that's not his name. If the Lord in all caps in your Bible is his name, not his title, Christ is his title, not his name. It means king, the one who is anointed as king, the way they would anoint kings to sort of signify Okay, now this person is the king. Jesus is the anointed king of God. And we know now that it means when it says the Lord reigns, that Jesus reigns and he's coming to reign. That's why the basis of the first song we said, or one of the first songs we sang today, he shall reign forevermore. It comes from this verse in Revelation 11:15 The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he shall reign forever. That's the good news. That's the gospel. Jesus reigns forever. So whoever has earthly authority here and now, whoever seems to be winning by advancing their agenda, whatever evil appears to go unchecked, none of it has escaped his notice. And we know the final outcome. Jesus reigns. And all the people of the earth who recognize Jesus' authority in their lives, not perfectly but sincerely recognizing his authority, will enjoy the greatest blessing of all, to live forever in his kingdom. And because of that, we sing. There's a song we always sing at Christmas time. It's actually not a Christmas song. It's a song about Jesus' return when he's coming again, his second coming, joy to the world. And notice the language. I've just put the first couple of lines of the, the verses here. Joy to the world, the Lord is come. Let earth receive her king. The Lord is king, the gospel, the good news. Joy to the earth, the Savior reigns. Let all their songs employ. Many have begun empires through force. Many have sought to rule their empires with an iron fist to keep people under their thumb. Only Jesus has come and established an empire among people whom he's won their hearts. And when he's won our hearts, when he rules us and we want him to rule us, we sing. We sing because he is king. And because he is king, that comes with implications. And highlighted in the last stanza is the implication that he alone will judge the world in righteousness. Now before we get to talking about his righteous judgment, I want to take note of something that we've seen in the three stanzas of this poem. It's pretty widely acknowledged that the first stanza is talking to the people of Israel. So it says, sing to the Lord all the earth, but it says, tell of his salvation. 
And at the time this was written, the people who knew his salvation was Israel. That was the people who understood, who were to declare among the nations. So we've moved from Israel in the first stanza. And then the circle widens, all the families of the earth. The families of the people. The people promised the blessing of Abraham. The song has expanded. And now we've come to the final stanza. And the the camera pans all the way back. Heaven and earth personified. Sing and shout for joy because all of creation is groaning under the weight of our rebellion. But when the Lord reigns, Heaven and earth break forth into song. Why should they? Because the Lord comes. There's no room in the Bible for a distant or disinterested God. God is always present, not only observing, but intervening in his world. And his final intervention is going to be when he comes to judge the earth. But he's not going to be like the unrighteous judges that you and I have known. Injustice is rampant in this world. We're getting a clearer taste of it in our country. But it's been the case across most of the world for most of human history. But when the Lord comes, he's going to restore justice. He's going to judge with equity and in righteousness. He's not going to make any miscarriages of justice. Now that's bad news for sinners because that means that there's no skating by, there's no legal loophole, there's no hoping nobody noticed because eyes of the Lord see all that takes place and he can discern the thoughts and intentions of our hearts. He knows everything about us, including every secret thing, and it's all going to be brought to light on that day. But if you know Jesus, then this is good news. As Pastor Doug prayed a moment ago, this is about vindication for the people of God. And it's gospel for us. It's gospel because in the book of Acts, the Apostle Paul travels to Athens, the cultural hub of the entire Mediterranean world. And he's preaching to the people in Athens and he says, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Again, turning from your idols, turning from whatever it is you've been chasing and seeking satisfaction in, and turning to God because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. So if Psalm 96 tells us the Lord reigns, the Lord is going to judge in righteousness, Acts 17 gives us the fuller picture that the judge who is to to judge in his place on the throne, the one that God has appointed judge, is Jesus. The means by which God is going to judge the world in righteousness is his son. And the good news is because he's raised from the dead, that death counts. His righteousness counts for those who have trusted him, who have followed him, who have recognized his good authority here and now. And his resurrection is the promise 
of our verdict. And so Christians don't fear Judgment Day because we know God's love for us. By this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear for fear has to do with punishment and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. And so we sing the just and righteous judgment of God. We sing because his perfect love has cast out fear. Fearful people have a hard time singing, but joyful people sing. There's a phrase that's gone around in the political world called, uh, the phrase is, the right side of history. And it's a slogan you most often hear to promote a certain political agenda, but the assumption is this. History is moving in a certain direction. We are all moving in that direction, so you should join our side, our political side, because if you join our side, as time goes on, history will judge you to be in the right. You won't be on the wrong side of history. Now, there's a lot of truth in that slogan. History is moving in a certain direction. There is a right side to be on and a wrong side. But unfortunately, what the world gets wrong is that the right side is not the sexual revolution, sexual libertarianism that that slogan often represents. The right side of history is following Jesus because ultimately it's not going to be history that judges us. It's going to be him. And so we sing the story of salvation, the glorious good news of the king who saves and who will one day judge the world in righteousness. And as we find ourselves singing that song, we find ourselves on the right side of history. There's a scene in the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation. It encompasses two chapters, Revelation 4 and 5. And in this scene, the curtain is pulled back and we get a glimpse into the throne room of heaven. And what you see happening in the throne room of heaven is there's singing. It begins with a quartet the four living creatures, singing of God's glory and his holiness. Holy, holy, holy is the song that they're singing. Then it moves to a small choir, the 24 elders, and they continue the song with their own proclamation of God's glory because of his power to create the world. And then they join together. And it says in Revelation 5-9, they sang a new song. And the song they sang was, Worthy are you to take the scroll to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. And then the song expands to multitude. It's the four living creatures, the 24 elders, and myriads, thousands of angels 
singing praise to God. And finally, it says in Revelation 5.13, I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them singing to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. If only we could hear the sound swelling, the antiphonal choruses, the elders, the four living creatures, the myriads of angels singing, and you, you can hear it. You read the text and you start to see it. It's moving out. It's expanding from, from Abraham to Israel to the nations to all creation. That's the direction that history is moving. What a glorious thing to join the chorus of all the redeemed. Not only all the people, but every creature, every element of creation that is right now groaning will one day sing. And one day we will be there. But in the meantime, we gather here. This is our little part. This, this group, we gather in this church and we sing week by week. And that's the foretaste of what it's going to be like. We're maybe a thousand plus strong here, but we're part of a chorus that is myriads of angels and one day all creation. So, let's pray and then let's sing. Our Father, we thank you for your word. And Lord, as we think of Psalm 96 this morning, our hearts yearn to sing your praises for all that you have done and all that you will do. God, we thank you that you are the one who was and who is and who evermore shall be. Give us grace, Lord, to get a glimpse of your glory and your transcendence this morning. And may our lives reflect that glory as we go out into the world. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.